Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm glad you're listening this morning. Well, I'm sorry I wasn't in the studio last week that we had a replay. I hope you enjoyed that replay of bumper sticker worldviews. I am back. My voice is a little bit better. Last week it was barely here whatsoever, so I hope to get through some important notes today. There is so much to talk about. There's been a lot in the news the last month or so. I wanted to get to that last week, couldn't. So this week we have everything I wanted to talk about last week and even some more that's come up in the past week. I only have so much time, so I got to kind of squeeze it into 30 minutes. So here are the four different items that I'm hoping to discuss today, all from recent news items. So first of all, I'd like to discuss the Babylonian Ark or the tablet that was recently deciphered that describes the Babylonian Ark. And some have said that that contradicts Genesis or that that disproves that the Bible is original or whatever. I'll get into some more of that. I also want to talk about the lesser wine inscription found in Jerusalem. That's important. You'll see why if you stay tuned. I also want to talk about the interesting claim that camels disprove the Bible. Who would have known camels could do it? And finally, I want to touch on the Ham-Nye evolution debate that happened a few days ago and all the fallout from that. So without further ado, let's get right into it because there's a lot to talk about in only so much time. I wanted to start with the Babylonian Ark. This is relevant because so much of what we're going to talk about today goes back to the validity of the Bible. Basically, every one of these stories in some way goes back to the question of whether or not we can trust the Bible. And so we'll start with the Babylonian Ark because this is right at that question, and it's a criticism against the trustworthiness of the Bible. A recently discovered Babylonian tablet describes an ark and animals going into it two by two, kind of like the Genesis story. This inscription dates to around 1700 BC, which predates the biblical account in Genesis. Many have concluded that that means that the biblical account comes from the Babylonian one. That includes Irving Finkel, the tablet's researcher, who stated, I am 100%, actually, I am 107% convinced the ark never existed. Got to quote him just right there. Well, there are some problems with such 107% convinced the ark never existed conclusions. First, the researchers are assuming that Genesis was written after the Babylonian exile. They assume that that's how Genesis derived from the Babylonian account. And this is part of what's been known as the documentary hypothesis, a hypothesis that is based on assumptions, and it's actually invalidated by modern ancient Near East archaeology. It's something that doesn't hold up. If you want to really investigate the documentary hypothesis and the dating of each of the books in the Old Testament, I would strongly encourage you to pick up The World and the Word by Merrill, Rooker, and Grisanti. Again, that's The World and the Word by Merrill, Rooker, and Grisanti. The documentary hypothesis is the typical assumption of secular scholarship, even though there's good evidence for Mosaic authorship around 1450 B.C. So a 1450 B.C. date for Genesis would make that and the Babylonian account contemporaries of each other, invalidating the assumption that the Genesis account derived from the Babylonian account after Israel's Babylonian exile. Additionally, there are multiple versions of the Babylonian flood account. The Atrahasis Epic Tablet 3, the Epic of Gilgamesh Tablet 11, and others as well. So we see different versions, and this tablet is really nothing all that new to researchers. You could check out links to 40 
of those different accounts of the flood, not just from the ancient Near East, but from every continent on the planet except Antarctica. You could find that list by searching list of flood accounts on Wikipedia. That's quite significant. The fact that there are over 40 flood accounts from every continent on the planet except Antarctica from ancient people all over the planet is extremely relevant to this discussion because there is a historical corroboration of the flood. This new Babylonian tablet isn't anything entirely new. It's just another example of the many flood accounts that have been described in ancient cultures from all over the earth. It's just one more from the ancient Near East, and it's just one more from the area of the Babylonians. I'm pretty sure neither Finkel nor his secular associates would claim that all of these accounts were derived from his Babylonian tablet. So the criticism goes that the tablet is where the Genesis account comes from. Well, what about the other 40-plus accounts from every continent except Antarctica? Did they all come from that tablet as well? See, at some point, we have to recognize that people from all over the earth from ancient times, all record this event. And I think it would be crazy for Finkel or anyone else to assume that all came from this tablet. I think that a lot of these are explanations of what those people remember happening. This is a plausible explanation of these accounts, and they really trace back to a distant shared memory, a real historical event that all these ancient people groups remember. As a Christian, I believe the Genesis account is historical. I also realize there is a polemical component to it as well. Scholars have long noted how Genesis is both polemical and historical. Genesis is God's revelation. It's his word for human beings. And it's intended to set the record straight on his creation of the world and the history from that point until later times. The critics respond that there's no evidence for the flood. I think they're wrong. Here are a couple things that you could check out, and there are many, many more. First, if such a flood did occur, we would expect humans to remember and record the event. Like I said, that has happened. Second, if it did occur, we would expect to find large quantities of fossils deposited in sedimentary layers. That's exactly what we find. Interesting how all these fossils were deposited in quote-unquote inland seas and floodplains. Third, if it occurred, we would expect to see genetic evidence. That's exactly what we see with Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve which are the ancestors of every human being alive today. Science confirms that every person on this earth comes from one woman and one man. This genetic bottleneck is evidence of Noah and his wife, of this flood event. The critic would disagree, saying that molecular clocks would separate Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve by nearly 100,000 years, but there's a problem with that. Just last year, scientists came to some new conclusions that would put Y-chromosomal Adam much earlier than they originally thought, possibly even a contemporary with mitochondrial Eve, according to science. Interestingly, this so-called molecular quark that they're using as well is full of uncertainty. So, one, you can't be sure of when Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve existed. Two, you could never say that they weren't contemporaries, even modern science, based on that molecular clock, says they could have been. And finally, at the end of the day, what we do know is that every human being on this earth came from one man and one woman. It's impossible to get away from this. I believe that Y-chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve 
are Noah and his wife. And just to clarify, every man on this earth derives from one man. We know that because of our Y chromosomes. And every person on this earth derives from one woman. We know that because of our mitochondrial DNA. That's what I'm referring to when I describe Y chromosomal Adam and mitochondrial Eve. I do think those names are a bit of a misnomer. I don't think that this is genetic evidence for Adam and Eve, but I think it's genetic evidence for a flood event, for a bottleneck event, where all but the offspring of one couple survived. There are other problems that people bring up with the biblical account of the flood. There are supposedly five civilizations that had histories that began before the supposed date of the flood that continued throughout it and continued afterwards. Of course, if that supposed date was right, that would be a big problem for the flood. What the critics don't realize, though, is that's a very narrow understanding of biblical genealogies. And I would encourage you to check out Norman Geisler's Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics his section on genealogies. It's very good, and it'll explain why this is not a problem whatsoever. Others would say that there's no way all the animals would fit. Please check out karm.org slash could Noah's Ark hold all animals. Again, karm.org could dash Noah's dash Ark dash hold dash all dash animals for more on that. Uh, finally, some would say a Babylonian tablet would invalidate it all. I just started the whole show off with that accusation. Not quite. Again, there is no reason to believe that the biblical account derives from the Babylonian account, unless you presuppose the documentary hypothesis, which you can't. This new Babylonian tablet is just one more flood account from antiquity that corroborates the biblical account. Now, here's the question. Since when do more witnesses hurt your case? <laughs> I think that's crazy. We have new evidence that supports the biblical statement that there was a worldwide flood. And somehow that's supposed to hurt the biblical case? I don't think so. So last thoughts on the tablet. The ark described in the Bible has perfect dimensions, which are still used in modern shipbuilding. The Babylonian ark? Who knows? It's a circle. I don't know if it would even float or if it'd be seaworthy. Still, this might be hard for some to believe. A worldwide flood? I want to encourage you that it's a miracle. A supernatural creator God is capable of miracles. Finally, this is so significant. Jesus calls you to believe in him, not to believe in a flood or whatever else. I'm not saying not to believe in the flood. I'm saying first we come to Jesus. And then we realize that he is God in human flesh and history corroborates his existence and his miracles and his death and resurrection, all these things. And if he is who he says he is, and I believe history confirms that he is, then whatever he says is true. And he said that there was a worldwide flood. So I believe him. He proved to have power over life and death, and I believe that we can take his word at whatever he says. There's an obvious need for humility on these issues. We're discussing cultures, languages, and history that are very far removed from our own. The last thing anyone needs to do is to import their, quote, 107% sure it didn't exist bias into their conclusions. That's exactly what Finkel and the critics are doing in this situation. Okay. The next inscription found, which was extremely significant, is the Lesser Wine inscription found in Jerusalem, which is the oldest Hebrew writing ever found in Jerusalem. Critics have long tried to disprove the Bible's history. One way they've done that is to say that the biblical accounts are without corroborating archaeological evidence and therefore fictitious. Well, we know that's not true. There is great archaeological evidence for so much of the Bible. And in the cases where we don't have that archaeological evidence, we can't assume that what's written about is not true. That would be an argument from ignorance. 
And that is a criticism that just can't be. It's not correct. It's actually a logical fallacy. Anyway, this has long been the case, and critics have long made these accusations that there was no evidence for King David and his son. I actually once heard a critic saying that David was nothing more than a fictitious king, a composite of all the Jews would have wanted in their king. I just about laughed because here we see a real picture of a real person who the Bible says committed adultery and murder, was one of the worst dads in scripture. The criteria of embarrassment lead me to conclude that he was historical, not just a fictional creation of myth. Additionally, the Tel Dan inscription found in the early 90s tells of the house of David and king of Israel, corroborating David's reign. So there again, the critics are out. Finally, the Moabite stone also tells of David's dynasty, and archaeologists are presently excavating King David's palace in Jerusalem. I know it's easy to forget this, but I want to remind the critics that fictional characters don't have real palaces. That's why we should always stay away from arguments from ignorance. The evidence might eventually turn up, and in the Bible's case, that happens all the time. So, unashamed with past failures, the critics continue to doubt not just David, but Solomon. So, recently, archaeologists described the oldest Hebrew writing ever found in the city of Jerusalem dating back to 3,000 years ago. Uh, On a side note, when will logical people stop their anti-Semitism and recognize Israel's historical roots in their land? I'm appalled by Kerry's recent anti-Semitic comments, and I'm not going to go into this a whole lot more, but I think that we should realize this is just one more historical corroboration of their right to exist in their historical homeland. Anyway, this ancient inscription only says, quote-unquote, lesser wine. Some might say that's irrelevant. It's not irrelevant. It is an interesting corroboration of King Solomon's rule. The lesser wine is what would have been given to the laborers and soldiers during Solomon's building projects, and this inscription dates back to the exact time the Bible describes his reign. So even though the inscription doesn't say Solomon, it corroborates a Hebrew dynasty headquartered in Jerusalem performing numerous construction projects during the 10th century BC. That nicely corroborates the biblical account of Solomon. The critics have to be careful before making such accusations against biblical history in the future. But I doubt they will be. And in just a minute, I'll share proof with you that they won't be more careful in the future. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM in Durango and KDUR.org online. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm thrilled you're listening. We're talking about some of the major archaeological finds that are in the news this week and how they relate to the trustworthiness of the Bible. We're talking about the Babylonian Ark, the lesser wine inscription found in Jerusalem, the fact that supposedly camels now disprove the Bible, and I'm going to conclude talking about the Hamni evolution debate. Anyway, we've talked about the first two, so get ready to hear about how camels and evolutionists supposedly disprove the Bible. So, talking about the whole accusation that camels disprove the Bible, headlines this past week exclaimed, The Bible is inaccurate and camels prove it. The fact that disproving the Bible is newsworthy is noteworthy in itself because it unwittingly corroborates the fact that the Bible hasn't yet been disproven. (laughs) Did you catch that? The fact that it's news that they supposedly disprove the Bible should make you aware of the fact that that hasn't occurred up till this point. 
Anyway, unfortunately for the critics who relied on camels to disprove the Bible, since they couldn't get the job done themselves, the camels come up short as well. Maybe they should try turning to monkeys to disprove the Bible. <laughs> Wait a minute. I think they did that. We'll talk about that more in a minute. It didn't work either. The Bible talks about domesticated camels in the time of Abraham, which might be the 18th or 19th century B.C. Yet this recent archaeological discovery supposedly dates the domestication of camels to about the 10th century B.C. So the researchers carbon-dated camel bones in the Arva Valley and arrived at those dates for the domestication of camels and then said, well, since the Bible says that camels were domesticated prior to that by eight or 900 years, the Bible must be wrong. Well, there's some problems with their statement, and this is actually how they describe their evidence. This is direct proof that the Bible text was compiled well after the events it describes. So, that's not the case. First of all, it doesn't take a genius to realize that this is just one study from one small region. Even if domesticated camels didn't exist there until the 10th century BC, one could hardly say that they weren't elsewhere. We also have to remember that the small amount of evidence that they collected can't disprove that camels existed there prior to the 10th century BC. We also can't conclude that they have all the evidence from even just that region. So maybe some camels weren't domesticated in that region. Well, that's not a problem. There are undomesticated horses in America right now. It doesn't mean domesticated horses don't exist in America. They're making a whole lot more of their research than they can. There's also another problem. Again, this is an argument from ignorance of a sort. M.C.A. McDonald of the Oriental Faculty at the University of Oxford has noted that, quote, recent research has suggested that domestication of the camel took place in southeastern Arabia sometime in the third millennium B.C., or a thousand years before Abraham. Originally, it was probably bred for its milk, hair, leather, and meat, but it cannot have been long before its usefulness as a beast of burden became apparent. Additionally, inscriptions and petroglyphs in the Wadi Nasib include pictures of domesticated camels and date to 1500 BC. That's a big problem for the archaeologists who claim they weren't domesticated until 600 years later than that. <laughs> so, we actually have pictures of domesticated camels etched into stone that predate this new study's supposed domestication of camels by 600 years and bring us almost all the way back to the time of Abraham themselves. So, again, the critics are in serious trouble here. For more on camel domestication, I would invite you to check out BibleArchaeology.org and just search camel in their search engine, BibleArchaeology.org. Camels don't disprove the Bible. So what about monkeys? I promised you we'd get to the monkeys part in a minute. So did you see the ham nigh debate? I didn't watch the debate. I don't know if you did watch the debate. I didn't hear it was all that great. I frankly didn't expect it to be all that great. I had one huge fear that I shared with my wife before the debate, and that was that Nye would be able to easily draw ham off the main issue of evolution into fringe issues that would be extremely hard to support in that kind of a setting. And that's exactly what I read happened. And I've read several different summaries of the debate. And I even saw on a Christian website that the consensus was that Ham lost the debate by 92 to 8%. That is embarrassingly bad. 
Most Christians believe in creation, and I am one of them. I am a committed creationist. But there are divergent views of some of these smaller side issues, like the age of the earth. Now, creationists of all sorts will differ from each other on the age of the earth. And I've said previously on this show that the Bible doesn't tell us how old the earth is. The Bible gives us many different genealogies that, when added up together in certain ways, produce certain dates. Now, that's fine if someone wants to believe that. That's more of an in-house type of issue. That's not something that I feel we should be out debating with secular scientists. That being stated, it is so hard to go into this kind of debate and get sidetracked from the main issue of evolution, which I feel happened. I really hoped that Ham would stay on topic and not be drawn into a battle that he would have a hard time winning. But I think that's exactly what happened. It is unfortunate that Ham sacrificed a battle he could not win for one that he could not lose. What's equally unfortunate is that so many Christians have been so quick to disparage him. This is an incredible man of God that's done a whole lot of good for Christianity. And we should be reluctant to say such terrible things of him. Pat Robertson should keep his remarks private and show some respect for a brother in Christ. I respect Ham's commitment to the authority of Scripture, and I respect his desire to keep the gospel in the forefront. I also wish someone stronger in science and debate skills would have debated Nye instead. I think maybe Geisler, Dembski, or even Dr. Groteis, who's been on this show, would have been worthier opponents in this debate. Interesting how the evolutionist atheists always reject debate opportunities with stronger Christian apologists. Remember how Dawkins continues to refuse to debate William Lane Craig. On that note, I would encourage you to sign the petition begging Dawkins to debate Craig. You could find that petition at ipetitions.com slash petition slash Dawkins Craig debate. Again, ipetitions.com slash petition slash Dawkins Craig debate. Or just Google petition Dawkins Craig and you'll find that petition. I've signed it. I hope you will. That debate would not be quite so lopsided as the Ham-Nye debate was. Anyway, I think that that is why Nye took up Ham's offer rather than the others's. He knew he could exploit a weakness and draw Ham into a fringe debate, effectively cutting down a straw man. Ham's poor performance does not invalidate creation, nor does it corroborate evolution. Here's why. There are several different reasons that you can be a confident creationist and that you can know that evolution did not occur. If I was debating Nye, this is exactly how I would have approached the debate. I would start by saying that the transitionary evidence for evolution is lacking. Both the fossil and genetic evidence remains elusive. The fossil record is as weak as it could be for their case, and the only thing they really have going for them is the pseudogene argument, which I believe also falls apart as soon as you realize that there's no such thing as junk DNA. Anyway, let's give them the transitional evidence. The apparatus of evolution, the mechanism of natural selection, is insufficient. Natural selection does not have the power to produce evolutionary change, and science confirms that. Well, let's say we're extremely generous and we give that to them as well. We also know that life doesn't arrive from non-life. 
the statistics, even if you gave them every organic molecule needed, which would never form in one place at the same time, even through the best circumstances, even if you gave that all to them, would still be 600 times statistical impossibility. Life doesn't come from non-life. Just getting those parts to align would be 600 times statistical impossibility. It's not going to happen. So let's say we're extremely generous and give that to them as well. We've given them the transitionary evidence that isn't there. We've given them the apparatus of natural selection, which doesn't work. We've given them life from nothing, which doesn't happen. Well, they still have to explain where information and design come from, because even if you gave them a bunch of molecules linking up the right way, for example, nucleotides linking up to form a rung of DNA or a strand of DNA, I should say, that still wouldn't code for any information. And even if it did, even if we were generous and gave them that as well, that still wouldn't tell us where all the laws that govern the natural processes of this earth come from. So they still wouldn't have an explanation for the information or design that we see all around us. But even if we were the most generous creationists that have ever existed and gave them that as well, they still wouldn't have an explanation for how this universe came from nothing a finite time ago. And that's something that science has confirmed. So the reality at the end of the day is that we know that everything you see around you came from nothing a finite time ago. And you might call that the Big Bang, but I think a much better word to use or a much better description would be creation. We know that that didn't just happen. It didn't just bang out of nowhere. We know that everything you see around you was designed by an intelligent designer. And that intelligent designer is God. I think you can be confident in God and the reality that he created everything that you see around you. Now, even if evolution were true and you could prove it, and of course you can't, you can't go into a lab and reproduce it. And I know some crazy scientists will say, oh yeah, we see that all the time. They're talking about natural selection working with what's already there, no true evolution. And again, my background is in science. I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry, and I've studied this stuff a whole lot. But the reality would be, even if you could prove evolution, that wouldn't invalidate theism, and it surely wouldn't invalidate Christianity. Christ's historical existence on this planet 2,000 years ago, the historical reality of his death and resurrection, give us everything we need to be confident in our faith in Jesus. And that brings me to the most important thing I could describe today on this show. The Bible is trustworthy, and Jesus offers you something nobody else can. He says that you and I are loved by God infinitely, but that we're selfish and sinful and that our sin separates us from a perfect God. He tells us that he, God in human flesh, lived a perfect life on this planet died on the cross for your sins and mine, and then rose again to guarantee you eternal life. And he says anyone that accepts his gift of salvation will be adopted into his family, will be forgiven for every sin from their past, will be given a new life on this planet. I just talked to a young man who a week ago prayed with me to put his trust in Christ. And yesterday when he talked, he said, he cannot believe the amount of joy that he's had this past week. I'm amazed by the real answers Jesus offers. If you've never taken that step to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would invite you to come to him today to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you rose again to give me life. 
I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord. He says the second you take that step of faith, putting your faith and trust in him, asking him to be your Savior and Lord, he will literally come into your life, give you a new life, give you a future and a hope here on this planet and an eternity with him in heaven. Well, I hope you got a lot out of this show. Again, we talked about some great stuff that's been in the news, the Babylonian Ark, the Lesser Wine Inscription in Jerusalem, the accusation that camels disprove the Bible, and the Ham-Nye debate. I hope you enjoyed it, and I would ask you to tune back in next week. I would also like to invite you to a local church this morning. Go to godsolutionshow.com and see a list of local churches and when and where they meet, and find one to join this morning. It would be great, and it would help you grow in your spiritual journey. I would also like to invite you to connect this week. We'll be meeting Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble Hall 125 here at Fort Lewis. Again, that's Tuesday at 6 p.m. in Noble Hall 125. Get all of our previous shows at godsolutionshow.com, and please let us know what you think. I really, really appreciate your comments and questions. I recently had a comment all the way from England. Nikita, if you're listening, thank you so much for getting in touch. I hope this is encouraging you and all your friends over in England. And thank you all for the comments that come from wherever and however many different places they come. Well, remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.